0: Welcome back and welcome to season two of the Art of History podcast. I'm Amanda Mata, and I have a degree in art history that I don't get enough use out of, so I started this podcast to cope. I'm sorry for the impromptu hiatus, um, which I've decided will represent the break between seasons one and two of the Art of History podcast. A lot of you reached out asking if there would be more episodes, which I really, really appreciated. If you don't follow my other channels, I recently had a major life change where I started a new job and got a completely new routine going. It was ultimately a really good change for me as I'm now devoting more time every week to creating content. If you do follow my other content besides the podcast, you also know that the royals have been up to a lot of shenanigans lately. So my attention was diverted over there more than I would have wanted it to be. But my hope is that I'm in a nice groove now, so hopefully we will be back on a regular schedule. One other housekeeping note before we dive into the episode, I am now on Patreon. If you would like to support the show, you are already doing that just by listening. But if you would like to lend even more support, you can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash mata, M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. As I said, I recently changed jobs, and that did mean a loss in income for me, so I cannot even begin to express what the support of my Patreons means to me. I will be uploading episode scripts, as well as slightly early ad-free episodes over there, and there will be some other goodies like essays, discount codes for merch, occasional early TikTok videos, and kind of whatever else takes my fancy. I also can't promise too much of a regular upload schedule on Patreon, but it has been fun getting that platform up and running as an additional place to interact with you guys. Now that that's out of the way, let's get on with the show. If you're new here, the premise is pretty simple. Each episode I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will walk us through a look at that piece together, and then we will dive into the history. Today we are looking at a 1558 portrait of Queen Elizabeth I that is housed at Hever Castle. If you know your intermediate-level Tudor history, you'll likely know Hever as the birthplace of Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I's mother. This painting is an interesting one. The identity of the sitter has been contested for decades, we'll get into that in a minute. And there is also no artist's name attached to it. It is just suggested that it was painted in the English style. So I'm gonna give you more detailed instructions than usual as to how to locate this painting. I do have it posted over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast for easy viewing. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. But if you are turning to Google to find the painting, you will want to do a very specific search there aren't too many images of this portrait out there. I would search Elizabeth the First Hever portrait, that's H-E-V-E-R, 1558, just so you hit all the keywords. It should be the first result that pops up, but if not, look for the image that is from the official Hever Castle website. Okay, so what are we looking at? A young woman whose identity I have already spoiled for you as Elizabeth the is facing us head on. Set against a muddy brown backdrop, she is dressed in a black gown with gold trimmings on her shoulders, wrists, and down her front. She sports a ruff around her neck, also edged in gold, and an ermine fur stole over her shoulders. Her hair is parted down the middle and pulled back so that her hairline is… well, large foreheads were the beauty standard for the Renaissance, I'm sorry to say. She has gently arched eyebrows, small gray eyes, and minuscule pursed lips. Her face is quite light, as are her hands, which are clasped in front of her. She wears a gold ring on her right index finger and is holding what appears to be a pair of neatly folded leather gloves. Above those gloves is a gold chain and pendant resting on her chest, and that's really it. That's all that's going on here. But take a look at her face again. If I hadn't told you the name of this portrait, would you know who this was? If you were a tutor subject, the expectation would have been yes. If this was your queen, you would be picking up on clues in the carefully crafted image that would let you know not only her identity, but also messages about her character. The way you would form an opinion about a person such as this was fully based on the context of the image being shown to you. So if indeed this is a portrait of Elizabeth, messages about her capability as a ruler are projected from the painting. I say if, because although scholars today do generally agree that this painting does show Elizabeth I around the beginning of her reign, either slightly before or slightly after becoming queen, this is a really recent development. This portrait, known sometimes as the Chawton portrait for the family who may have owned it bears a striking resemblance to another from around the same time, known as the Sewell portrait. While researching a 2015 book called A Queen of a New Invention, Portraits of Lady Jane Grey slash Dudley, a historian named John Stephen Edwards completed extensive research into both of these pictures. During that process, they each underwent dendrochronology testing, uh, which is testing the wood that they were painted on for its age. It was firmly established that both pictures dated to the late 1550s. Edwards then suggested a theory that both portraits were based on another earlier and more finely detailed painting known as the Barry Hill portrait, and that all three depicted the same individual. The Barry Hill portrait at that time was listed as lost. It had last been seen in 1956. At the time of his initial research, Edward actually ruled out the possibility of the sitter being Elizabeth, in favor of it being her cousin, the Lady Catherine Gray. Edwards noted that if the portrait had ever been associated with Elizabeth, it would have been of greater interest to potential buyers than it was in the early 1900s, and it probably wouldn't have disappeared. Then, in 2021, a work thought to be the Barry Hill portrait appeared and sold at auction for $120,000. The auction house had John Stephen Edwards conduct an analysis, at which time it released this statement. The personage depicted in this portrait has been the subject of debate for some time. Over the years, it has been suggested by various curators, gallerists, and academics that the sitter is Lady Jane Grey, But the most modern consensus is that the sitter is either Queen Elizabeth I or Lady Catherine Grey. Dr. Edwards has reviewed our images of the painting and now believes the sitter to be Queen Elizabeth I. He also dates the work to 1555 to 1563. I will have all of these portraits on the Instagram if you would like to compare and see if you think that they all depict the same individual. Edwards himself reflected on the exciting new attribution on his blog, saying, The Chawton portrait, the one we're looking at, acquired its identification as a portrait of Elizabeth I in about 1909, though it did so on a very questionable basis. This is apparently why other identities were considered for the sitter. But now, quote, the greatest probability is that the sitter is Elizabeth I as she appeared late in the reign of her sister Mary or early in her own reign before she asserted control over her own iconography in about 1563. I remember seeing an image of this portrait before the attribution to Elizabeth I was definitively proven. I cannot for the life of me remember where I saw it. It apparently is not in any of the books that I own or that I have checked out in the past. But I distinctly remember the portrait being described as Elizabeth I in the image of her father, Henry VIII, and that wording stuck with me. For that reason, and for the new analysis that came out since the Barry Hill portrait sold last year, the supposition that it is Elizabeth I is what I will be basing the rest of my analysis on. Edwards has also not released his full analysis of the picture or his logic for why he came to the conclusion that it is Elizabeth. I think he has teased that it will be in an upcoming book or a feature with the auction house. But while I do think that the Chawton, the Berry Hill, and the Sewell portraits probably depict the same person, I think that there is one element that sets the Chawton portrait apart and that is Elizabeth's face strongly resembling that of her father. By that, I mean her features align eerily well with portraits made of Henry VIII throughout his reign. I would go a step farther than Edwards to assert that the Chawton portrait does show Elizabeth in the earliest days of her own reign, or at the very least from the brief time that Elizabeth knew that she would be queen after her sister Mary I. I will, of course, tell you how I arrived at that conclusion, but first I want to drop us into history to get to know these people who I just name-dropped and to examine the circumstances of Elizabeth I's early life. How did she go from a greatly desired royal baby to an illegitimate, unwanted child to the most powerful woman in the Western world? Elizabeth was born at Greenwich Palace on September 7th, 1533. She actually shares a birth date with my mother. Her mother, Anne Boleyn, had been married to King Henry VIII for just under eight months and had been crowned his queen for just over three months. The story, I'm sure you all know it, goes that Henry was so sure that Anne would be giving birth to a son that he had letters and proclamations drawn up in advance to announce the birth of a prince. After all, he had broken with the Catholic Church in order to marry Anne because his first wife couldn't seem to give him a male heir. Surely after so much grief and so much waiting, this was the moment that his wish would be granted. But no, Anne's child was a red-headed baby girl, and so Henry's advisors had to squeeze two extra S's to the proclamations, and the celebratory joust that he had planned for after the birth was cancelled. The baby was named Elizabeth, after two of her grandmothers, Elizabeth of York and Elizabeth Howard. The king was disappointed, but saw this female child as a sign of things to come. If Anne Boleyn could give him a healthy daughter, then surely their next child would be a son. This had been the logic when Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, had managed to produce only one living child during their marriage. There was also a daughter, Mary, who was 17 years older than Elizabeth and had been stripped of her own title of princess when her father broke away from the Catholic Church to divorce Catherine and Mary Anne. The year following Elizabeth's birth, 1534, saw the act of supremacy officially establish the Church of England and place Henry as its supreme head. At this time, the Lady Mary was officially declared illegitimate, and Elizabeth replaced her as Henry's heir. The infant was given her own household which included her half-sister to wait upon her mary refused to acknowledge her father as head of the church something which spoke to her deep catholic faith and her devotion to her mother's memory however it would not be long until she was joined by elizabeth in illegitimacy anne boleyn was beheaded on trumped-up charges of adultery in 1536 having failed to give henry his long-awaited son Before her execution, Anne's marriage to Henry was annulled, meaning that it had never been valid in the eyes of the Church, and so Elizabeth was made a royal bastard. Her childhood would be overseen not by her mother, of whom she is recorded as only mentioning twice during the entire rest of her life. Instead, Elizabeth was to be brought up by governesses and gain her life experience through keen observations. Her first governess was Lady Margaret Bryan, who on at least one occasion had to write to the King's secretary, Thomas Cromwell, to beg for essential items of clothing like nightgowns and chemises. Elizabeth, as children do, had outgrown the sumptuous clothing ordered for her by Anne Boleyn, and it seems that no one thought to send her new ones. Lady Bryan served and took care of Elizabeth until the princess was four years old, at which time she was transferred to the household of Henry VIII's long-awaited son, Prince Edward. Edward had been born in October 1537 to Henry's third and favorite wife, Jane Seymour. Although his mother had firmly supplanted Anne Boleyn in their father's affections, Edward and Elizabeth were destined to form a close bond, and I think they viewed one another as fully brother and sister. They were close in age and shared the same religion, and would both demonstrate a passion for learning. Elizabeth's second governess was a young woman named Catherine Ashley, or Cat, as Elizabeth affectionately referred to her. She would marry a cousin of Anne Boleyn's in 1545, tying her even closer to her young royal charge. Elizabeth would indeed come to view Cat Ashley as a mother figure, one of a few who touched her life. Cat Ashley was well-educated and took charge of Elizabeth's education. As I said, Elizabeth would prove to be a bright child, and that began with Cat teaching her the basics of reading, writing, mathematics, geography, even architecture and astronomy. Of course, she also learned the fundamental skills imparted to a young lady of good breeding in the Tudor era—needlework, music, dancing, and language. Elizabeth did interact with three of her stepmothers. Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard both attempted to reconcile the young princess with King Henry, and he did send for her to visit court from time to time but more often than not, it was through messengers that he would interact with his middle child, sending inquiries about her education and her health. In 1540, when Elizabeth was seven, her father married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. She was possibly as young as 15 years old when they married, making her more of a contemporary to Elizabeth than a stepmother. The two were said to have gotten along, and in fact, at all the public engagements that celebrated Henry VIII's fourth marriage, The young Queen Catherine gave the Lady Elizabeth, quote, the place of honor nearest to her own person. This great favor was because Catherine saw Elizabeth as her cousin. Anne Boleyn's mother was a sister to Catherine Howard's father, making her and Elizabeth first cousins once removed. During her brief tenure as Queen, Catherine would send for Elizabeth for no other reason than to spend time with her. When Catherine became the second of Henry's queens to be executed for adultery in 1542, her death, with its echoes of Anne Boleyn's grisly fate, would have most likely constituted a resurrection of old trauma for Elizabeth. Her lifelong friend, Robert Dudley, later said that at that time, only eight years old, but having already lived through the deaths of two wives at the hands of her father, Elizabeth swore that she would never marry. By now, she was no longer Princess Elizabeth, but rather the Lady Elizabeth, having been stripped of her title as her older sister Mary had once been. Keenly observant as ever, the change in her name apparently did not escape her. She is said to have declared, how haps it, Governor, yesterday my lady princess, today but my lady Elizabeth. Even so, her father attempted to make diplomatic marriage plans for the young Elizabeth, all of which, in the words of historian Alison Weir, came to nothing because of the taint of bastardy and her mother's notorious reputation. Things looked a little brighter, however, once Henry took his sixth and thankfully final wife, Catherine Parr. I want to do a dedicated episode on Catherine Parr at some point, as she was a really fascinating woman. She was an exceptionally smart woman, able to match wits with Henry VIII, even as his health and mental state deteriorated in his later years. Catherine Parr would actually become the first woman to publish a book written in English under her own name. She took an immediate interest in her young stepchildren, arranging for Elizabeth to have a tutor of her own. Since 1544, Elizabeth had been studying alongside her brother Edward, receiving lessons from a Dr. Richard Cox. Now, given her own teacher, a scholar named William Grindle, Elizabeth embarked upon an education that would make her, again in Weir's words, an ornament to the House of Tudor, rather than a savvy queen. She was therefore taught Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, and even some Welsh, the language of her Tudor forefathers. That last one actually came from another woman in her household, Blanche Perry, who remained a close friend and confidant of Elizabeth I throughout her life. Elizabeth's talents as a student were extolled by her teachers. One Roger Ascham wrote, I have dealt with many learned ladies, but among them all, the brightest star is my illustrious Lady Elizabeth. Catherine Parr is also given credit for lobbying Henry to restore Elizabeth and Mary to the line of succession. The Succession Act of 1543 placed the two royal ladies back in line after their half-brother Edward and also after any hypothetical children that Henry might have with Catherine Parr. It's worth noting here that there never were any children born after Edward, but Henry accounted for that possibility nonetheless. Although his mobility by this time was severely hindered by an enormous ulcer on his leg and his weight, he also added a place in the succession for hypothetical children born to any queen he might take after Catherine Parr. Anyone around him by this time could have told him that he was in a state of decline, but oh well, he was optimistic. Catherine also genuinely seemed to like spending time with all of Henry's children, and particularly seemed to have a fondness for Elizabeth. Elizabeth's first known letter was written to Catherine, and she also produced several translations of religious texts, some of them with hand-embroidered covers. Elizabeth was still falling in and out of her father's favor, however. Once during a stay at court, she somehow deeply offended Henry and was banished from the palace. We don't know what exactly this offense was, but it's thought to have been a remark or a question that Henry found inappropriate. Known by this point for his extreme bouts of rage, it was probably only with Catherine Parr's intervention that the incident blew over and Elizabeth was allowed to return to court. If you're wondering why I haven't yet mentioned Elizabeth's relationship with her older half-sister Mary, that's because there wasn't much of one to speak of. Although I think you can say that the sisters got along amicably, all things considered, they were never close. Elizabeth later mused in one of the two recorded times that she mentioned her mother that she felt Mary was so cool to her because of the way that Anne Boleyn had treated Catherine of Aragon. Besides the complicated family history between them, Mary and Elizabeth simply had different worldviews and different personalities. Mary was a staunch Catholic, and Elizabeth was brought up as a Protestant. Mary looked to her family connections in France and the Holy Roman Empire and Spain. Elizabeth was bolstered by her decidedly English relations. And of course, the 17 years between them could not have helped things. Elizabeth and Edward did remain close, however. They were together at the Royal Palace of Enfield in London on January 28, 1547, when they were told that their father, Henry VIII, had died. Then and there, the brother and sister are said to have held on to each other and wept. They had to have been aware that their lives were about to change significantly. Both were now orphans, their mothers having died when they were each infants. Elizabeth was 13, Edward was 9, and he was now King of England. After her father's death, Elizabeth went to live with his widow, Catherine Parr, at Soodley Castle. They were joined there by Elizabeth's cousin, the Lady Jane Grey, who was one of Catherine Parr's attendants. Also living at the castle was Catherine's new husband, Thomas Seymour. If you have been keeping track of the family ties thus far without a pen and paper, props to you, uh, but you might want to grab them for this next part. Thomas Seymour was, you guessed it, a brother to Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, making him uncle to the new boy king, Edward. He was created Baron of Sudley upon Edward coming to the throne, partly because Thomas's brother, Edward Seymour, was named Lord Protector of the Realm and sort of oversaw things for the young king. The Baron of Sudley title was kind of a consolation prize. Thomas and Catherine Parr had rekindled an old love affair after Henry's death, and they married, without the permission of the king or his counsel, just four months after Catherine had been widowed, and she was pregnant by the following year. During the Dowager Queen's pregnancy, however, her husband began to show a decidedly unfatherly interest in the Lady Elizabeth. Thomas Seymour, by all accounts, was quite dashing, even if he was overly ambitious. It's been suggested that Elizabeth did have a bit of a crush on him. But being the adult in the situation, a man in his 30s, and a married one at that, Seymour should have firmly put a stop to any flirtation that was going on immediately. But he didn't, and soon things between him and the 14-year-old escalated. At first, their interactions are painted as lighthearted enough, but then Catherine Parr reportedly found Elizabeth and Thomas in an embrace. Embrace can mean a lot of things, and that one word here doesn't tell us anything about who initiated it or what the connotations of it were. But we do know that from that point on, Catherine would join her husband in what has been described as horseplay between Thomas and Elizabeth. He took to visiting her bedchamber early in the morning and slipping into bed to tickle her. When the Dowager Queen started joining in, she too would tickle and tease Elizabeth while she wore nothing but her nightdress. On one occasion, the two cornered Elizabeth in the garden, the Queen holding on to her while Seymour cut up a mourning gown that Elizabeth was wearing. This episode, again, could be interpreted in different ways and be given different overtones. It could easily be read as some sort of depraved sexual abuse, but it could also just as easily come across as a light-hearted moment of play, a moment of joy in which Elizabeth's stepmother helps her come out of mourning for her father. I have heard convincing arguments from scholars on both sides of this issue. I think it best to err on the side of caution and say that Elizabeth probably did not want things to go this far, but the true tone of exactly what went on between Elizabeth and Seymour will always be a mystery. What is certain, however, is that none of the women in the situation, such as Catherine Parr, Cat Ashley, or Elizabeth herself, were entirely comfortable with his behavior. Elizabeth took to waking up early so that when he arrived at her room in the mornings, she would already be up and dressed. Then, Elizabeth was reportedly found with Seymour alone one more time, and Catherine Parr has been painted as not only concerned about his behavior, but also perhaps a little jealous of the attention that Elizabeth was receiving. She would have been getting along in her pregnancy by Thomas Seymour at this time, and some historians think that she might have been clouded in her perception of the situation, or had become hyperfixated on her husband's wandering attentions. Whatever actually happened, Catherine evidently thought it best that the Lady Elizabeth was sent away from Sudley Castle, which she was in May 1548. The two would never see each other again, although Elizabeth did write to her stepmother. But Catherine died giving birth to her only child, a daughter named Mary, in September 1548. Her funeral was held on Elizabeth's 15th birthday. It was the first Protestant funeral held in English, and Lady Jane Grey was the chief mourner in the procession. Shortly after his wife's death, Thomas Seymour began to seek Elizabeth's hand in marriage. Elizabeth, for her part, turned him down. There were rumors that he had toyed with the idea of marrying her before marrying Catherine Parr, and the reason as to why would soon become clear. Thomas was by all accounts jealous of his brother's role as Lord Protector in King Edward's government, and the power that he held. Thomas hatched a really quite crazy scheme that would enable him to take his brother's place as Lord Protector. This involved a plan to abduct King Edward marry him to Lady Jane Grey, and marry himself to Elizabeth. Thomas got as far as attempting to break into the King's apartments, where one of Edward's pet dogs awoke and began to bark, giving him away. He shot and killed the dog, but not before it had alerted the household to his presence. The next day, he was arrested for treason. When it came time for Thomas Seymour to be questioned, his relationship with Elizabeth became central to the issue at hand. Was she also disloyal to the king? Had she planned to go along with the proposed marriage? Although she herself was never charged with a crime, some of Elizabeth's servants were sent to the Tower, and palace councilmen came to question her. This is where our knowledge of Elizabeth's time living with Catherine Parr comes from, the depositions produced during the investigation into Thomas Seymour's treasonous plot. Some of the testimony, including that of Cat Ashley, left room to doubt Elizabeth's total opposition to the match with Seymour. Cat believed that Elizabeth had developed a crush on him, and encouraged her to play along with his advances and correspond with him after Catherine Parr's death. She may have been a motherly figure, but Cat Ashley was not the best uh, wingwoman. In the end, Elizabeth did manage to uphold her innocence. Thomas Seymour was charged with 33 counts of treason, found guilty, and executed by beheading. Elizabeth herself was never placed on trial, but just being implicated in the Seymour affair was enough to take a physical toll on her. Banished from court in the wake of the scandal, she was unwell for several months following Seymour's conviction. This, it turned out, would only fuel the rumors that were circulating at court that she was carrying his child. Here we see the first instance of Elizabeth's concern with her public image, a concern that would later mature into an obsession. She knew that she needed to squash the rumor that she was pregnant by Seymour, and so she wrote to the council asking for a proclamation to be made, so it would be on record that this was no more than treacherous gossip. But for whatever reason, these plans were considered, but never carried out. Eventually, Elizabeth was allowed to return to court once again, where she took the matter of image rehab into her own hands. She dressed as, quote, the perfect Protestant lady, wearing plain black and white gowns, foregoing any jewelry or ornamentation, and refusing to wear makeup. Quite the somber contrast to what her image would eventually morph into, Elizabeth's modesty of dress as a young woman was noticed, with King Edward calling her sweet sister temperance. Understandably, given the implications that Elizabeth had dabbled in a bit of light treason, her relationship with Edward had cooled slightly. In the wake of the Seymour affair, Edward's Lord Protector had been replaced, the job going to John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland. By now, Edward was suffering from an affliction that was probably tuberculosis, which left him weak and just as reliant as ever on his ministers. Sidebar, if you are looking for a historical fiction book about this time in uh, history, I recommend My Lady Jane by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. I have the audiobook, which is just absolutely fantastic. Um, It is a young adult book, and it's highly, highly fabricated. It is not true to the history in more than the broad swaths. But it gives you a story where Edward and Lady Jane Grey are central characters, and it is really just delightful, so cannot recommend that enough. John Dudley is also a key player in that book. In real life, he used his new position to ensure that the future of the monarchy would remain in the hands of the Protestants and away from the Catholics. And his plan also happened to assure that his own power would remain unchecked in the process. Dudley's first move was to prepare the line of succession for Edward's inevitable death at a tragically young age. According to the last act of succession put in place by Henry VIII, Edward's heir was his oldest half-sister Mary, but she was an ardent Catholic, which obviously wouldn't do for Northumberland and the other councillors who had enjoyed power since Henry's death. Mary's accession to the throne would unquestionably remove them from their positions, if not from life, and put a stop to the church reforms that had taken place under Edward's rule. But if you were going to exclude Mary from the succession, you also had to remove Elizabeth, or you'd just end up with a war between two factions led by the two sisters. If both of Edward's sisters were once again excluded from the succession, Then the crown could go to the Suffolk Grey line that had descended from Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary. I know, 80 different key players here, and they all have the same five names. But with a little bit of extra line of succession wrangling, Northumberland had his solution. The father of several children, including Elizabeth's childhood friend Robert Dudley, Northumberland was not above using them here and there as pawns in the game of courtly power shuffling. He married his youngest son, Guildford Dudley, to the Lady Jane Grey in 1553, knowing full well that he had arranged the succession to set everyone who stood before her in line aside. Edward succumbed to his illness in July 1553, and three days later Jane Grey was proclaimed Queen. I also plan to cover Jane at some point in the future, have no fear, but for now, if you are looking for a good listen on her, I would recommend either the Vulgar History Podcast or Queen's Podcast, or both. They each have episodes on her that are about 45 minutes long. So Jane is proclaimed queen in accordance with Edward's will. To Edward's sister Mary, however, who had lived decades up to this point thinking that she would be the queen who restored England to its place in the Catholic Church, this would not do. To her, Jane taking the throne was nothing less than a coup attempt. Mary raised an army of supporters and launched a fight for what she saw, with reason, I think, as her throne. Jane was deposed, and Mary became England's first unchallenged Queen Regnant on July 19th, 1553. Five days later, Northumberland was arrested and later executed. Mary was actually opposed to Jane's execution. She understood that she had merely been a pawn in Northumberland's scheme, and so she let her live for another six months. As Mary I undertook a triumphant procession into London, her sister Elizabeth was given the privilege of riding beside her. I think this surprises a lot of people, but yes, there was a show of solidarity between them as the two daughters of Henry VIII. For all that he had been a formidable king, he had also been revered by his subjects, and so Mary and Elizabeth were cheered equally as they entered London to restore Henry's bloodline to the throne. I am going to take a short break, and when I return, we will get into Elizabeth's life at the court of her second sibling to rule, Mary I. With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. And we're back. Elizabeth would soon discover that life as Queen Mary I's de facto heir was not going to be simple. Mary set about the business of reversing the Protestant reforms of her father and her half-brother, and she reinstated Catholicism as the religion in England. She soon became suspicious of her Protestant half-sister and was reluctant to officially acknowledge her as her heir. At this time, Elizabeth would have been Mary's heir presumptive, the person who is next in line for the throne, but who can be deplaced in the succession with the birth of a nearer heir. In this case, Mary still fully expected to get married and have a son. After all, it was her duty to restore the Catholic faith to England, and a healthy Catholic heir would certainly help her seal the deal. To this end, Mary set her sights on Prince Philip of Spain as a possible consort. Philip saw the potential engagement as entirely political. He would be able to rule as a co-monarch with Mary for as long as they were together, but he would not be able to carry on as king should he outlive her. The reason for this arrangement is partly sexism. Britain had never before had a successful queen regnant, and by successful, I just mean one who was not widely challenged or deposed. The Privy Council and Parliament were a bit nervous about having a woman do the job of governing all on her own, and therefore agreed that Philip should, quote, aid Her Highness in the happy administration of Her Grace's realms and dominions, and that he and Mary should co-sign all royal documents." As Philip could not read English, however, all matters of state from then on needed to be written in Latin or Spanish. For Mary's part, I don't think that she minded this. As a good Catholic, she would have also seen it as her duty to be ruled by a husband. All of this is to say that, for the public, Mary's match with Philip of Spain was immensely unpopular. For their monarch to share power with a Spanish prince, and one who would actually succeed his father as King of Spain while married to the Queen of England, people feared that England too would fall under the influence of Spain, a major European power, and, of course, the Catholic Church. Before the marriage went ahead, a man named Thomas Wyatt planned to raise a rebellion in opposition to it. The conspirators were captured before anything could really happen, and also really before their goals had fully taken shape. All that's known for sure is that they wanted Queen Mary to renounce her plans to marry Philip. But as the conspirators were being questioned, it came out that there had also been talks of having Elizabeth married off to a man named Edward Courtenay, Earl of Devon. Remember, Elizabeth has decided from the age of eight that she will never marry, but that hadn't stopped anybody from including her marriage as a key pivot point in all of these plots and schemes. Elizabeth's marriage to the Earl of Devon would have resulted, should they have had any children, in a fully English succession to the throne, and a point around which anti-Catholic nobles could have rallied in opposition to Mary. Elizabeth, once again, found herself named in a dangerous political plot. Some people think that Wyatt's scheme was not going to stop at stopping the queen's marriage, but would have gone further down the road of dethroning her entirely and handing the crown over to Elizabeth. Most agree today that Elizabeth likely had no knowledge of this plot at all, and if she did, she probably wouldn't have approved of it. She, like I said, has already demonstrated a distaste for marriage, and had indicated that she wanted to distance herself from anything with even a whiff of rebellion to it. But the implication of her name alone was enough to place her, once again, under suspicion of treason. She herself denied having any knowledge of Wyatt's plans, but Mary was pushed by her Catholic advisors to place Elizabeth under arrest and bring her to trial. These advisors considered Elizabeth's very existence a threat to the Queen, to her Spanish marriage, and to the succession. On March 18th, 1554, Elizabeth was taken by boat to the Tower of London as a prisoner. At the threshold, Elizabeth refused to enter, claiming that she was innocent and a loyal subject of the Queen. She was undoubtedly thinking of her mother and Catherine Howard being taken to the tower in advance of their own executions for things that they probably didn't do. Eventually, she reconsidered and did enter the tower and was imprisoned in the Bell Tower. She was able to keep some of her household with her, including Cat Ashley. Mary's advisors further pushed her to execute Elizabeth. About a month before Elizabeth was taken to the Tower, Jane Grey had been beheaded there, along with her father, who had been part of Thomas Wyatt's scheme, her husband, Guildford Dudley, and Thomas Wyatt himself. I think it's important to note that Mary had been giving in, again, to external pressure from her council when she finally did execute the Lady Jane Grey. And I think that had additional pressure been applied in the right way, she could have easily been swayed to include her half-sister in the death warrants that she signed in 1554. But it helped that there was no physical evidence against Elizabeth and that Wyatt had declared her innocent as he was led to his own execution. And so, after about two months, Elizabeth was released from the Tower. She was still a prisoner, however. She was gaining popularity amongst Mary's subjects across the country, and so Mary had her placed under house arrest at Woodstock Palace near Oxfordshire. On her way there, crowds came out to greet Elizabeth with cheers and gifts. Mary and Philip of Spain were married that July at Winchester Cathedral, Philip's aide wrote that, quote, The marriage was concluded for no fleshly consideration, but in order to remedy the disorders of this kingdom and to preserve the Low Countries. So again, entirely political, not romantic at all from Philip's point of view. He saw his role as Mary's consort as instrumental in restoring the Catholic faith in England and restoring some of his strength abroad. He was also about 10 years younger than Mary, who by this point was 37 years old. By September, Mary, desperate to bear a child, stopped menstruating and started to gain weight. She also felt nauseous in the morning. All telltale signs to a Tudor doctor that the queen was pregnant. As her stomach grew larger, preparations were made for her to give birth. Parliament passed an act that would allow Philip to rule as regent should Mary die in childbirth. Elizabeth reportedly considered an escape plan from Woodstock to France to avoid a life of imprisonment in this case, or in the case that Mary did indeed give birth to a healthy Catholic heir and had her own succession assured. But if Mary and her child were both to die, Elizabeth would become queen. Apparently weighing the odds and finding them in her favor, Elizabeth stayed in England and was released from house arrest after nearly a year so that she could return to court and witness Mary's birth, which was expected to occur in April 1555. April came and went, as did May, and then June. By July, Mary's stomach began to shrink, without a child ever having been produced. It became clear that Mary had never been pregnant at all. She was most likely suffering from a phantom pregnancy or some people think maybe a stomach tumor. With no child though, Elizabeth's succession now seemed assured. Mary considered the phantom pregnancy a punishment from God for her having quote, tolerated heretics in her realm. And so she ramped up her efforts to burn Protestants at the stake. It was this practice of religious persecution that ultimately led to her posthumous nickname of Bloody Mary, which was by all accounts coined by 17th century Protestant writers. It was clear that Mary's star was waning while Elizabeth's was on the rise, but it was not until Mary's final bout of illness that she finally acknowledged Elizabeth as her heir. And, perhaps more surprisingly, it was Mary's husband, the King of Spain, who advocated for Elizabeth. This was likely because after Elizabeth, the next claimant to the English throne would have been Mary, Queen of Scots. She, as the daughter of Henry VIII's eldest sister, Margaret, was a cousin of Mary and Elizabeth's. Philip was said to have pushed Elizabeth forward, as his very Protestant sister-in-law was likely to be a better ally than the Queen of Scots, who had grown up in France and was betrothed to the Dauphin. Evidently, it was seen as more in Philip's interest to secure a Protestant succession to the English throne with the devil he knew, rather than to help the French take root in England. When Mary I fell seriously ill in 1558, Philip sent his captain of the King's guard, Count Feria, to consult with Elizabeth, and by October 1558, with his knowledge and input, Elizabeth was making plans for her own government. She was at her childhood home of Hatfield House when Mary died on November 17, 1558. Elizabeth was said to be eating an apple under an oak tree when the news of her accession reached her. She was just 25 years old, and for the first time in her life, her destiny lay in her own hands. She knelt on the ground and said in Latin, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And on January 15, 1559, Elizabeth I was crowned at Westminster Abbey, wearing the cloth of gold coronation robes that were originally worn by her sister Mary. With all of this context now laying the groundwork, let's return our attention to the Hever Portrait, which I am supposing was painted in the latter half of 1558, when Elizabeth likely would have been making those plans for her government. When reading to learn portraiture as a way of interpreting history, it is important to recognize that there are always complex issues at play. Paintings can help to give us an impression of a person, but they can never be taken at face value as there are always hidden motives, exaggerated or downplayed elements, and above all, careful staging at work. Portraits for the tutors were a form of propaganda. They were created to impress, to show off wealth, and to display power. These carefully controlled images would almost always be copied and distributed so that members of the nobility across the country could own a copy of the latest image of their monarch as a way of showing loyalty to them. As a result, specific types of portraits became the norm. As I recently heard somebody say on, I think it was the Not Just the Tudors podcast, you rarely see an image of Henry VIII without knowing that it's Henry VIII, and that's intentional. It's clear that even in early images of Elizabeth, she understood this power of portraiture. Like all the tutors, she would have known the value of every single opportunity to make her subjects aware of her identity, and she would have taken steps to communicate messages through her image. The National Portrait Gallery in London notes of Elizabeth, Her grandfather, Henry VII, was the first monarch to put his own accurate portrait on English coinage while her father, Henry VIII, seized on Holbein's ability to present himself as a strong and majestic ruler in numerous official portraits. Elizabeth I's ability to control her public image, in my opinion, surpassed even that of her father. In a plethora of majestic official portraits painted throughout her reign, Elizabeth, quote, repeatedly mobilized her own image as a symbol of royal authority in a conscious demonstration that, despite being a woman, she was the natural and legitimate ruler of England. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of her early portraits, however, is their presentation of Elizabeth the woman rather than Elizabeth the symbol. What we see in the Hever portrait is a mix of all of these things. We see a young woman, an heir presumptive, if not yet a monarch, who is eager to establish her authority in her subject's eyes as quickly as possible. To that end, she is depicted as a young, fresh-faced monarch who is not yet hampered by the pomp and regalia associated with her later images. Elizabeth's own iconic personal imagery had not yet taken hold. Her face, for one thing, is fuller than it would be depicted in later portraits, looking more like portraits of her father instead. We do have one image of Elizabeth that definitively predates this one from when she was around 13 years old. I will post that on the Instagram as well. In this portrait, Elizabeth wears a pearl-encrusted necklace, French hood and belt, as well as those trademark Tudor sleeves. That likeness doesn't entirely resemble the Heaver portrait either. Her nose and mouth in the first image are a bit larger. What does appear in both portraits is Elizabeth's red hair, an emblem of the Tudors and of her father's more vigorous years as the handsome, athletic, golden prince. In the Heaver portrait, the likeness of Elizabeth is simplified and formulaic. Through her facial expression, clothing, and pose, the soon-to-be queen is displaying a seriousness of purpose that I think can be applied to her religious convictions, what she intended to do for religion once she took the throne. The key question at Elizabeth's accession, after all, was which religious direction she would choose to take the country in. It has been argued, then, that the earliest portraits of Elizabeth attempted to portray her as committed to spreading the English vernacular, continuing the work of Henry and Edward to spread Protestantism. It makes sense, then, that the artist would make Elizabeth physically resemble her father as much as possible, without making the likeness completely unflattering. The eyes, the full cheeks, and the small mouth, I really believe were all strategically painted from those formulaic images of Henry to draw a connection between the two. I do have a video on the Instagram where you can watch the portraits morph in and out of one another so you can really see what I'm talking about here. Elizabeth would later become associated with complex emblems and imagery, some for example relating to her virginity, which spoiler alert, she probably wasn't actually a virgin for her whole life, but she took on that mantle as a way of proclaiming herself virtuous and committed to her people. Other symbols spoke to her role as the mother of her people, or to her wisdom. But here, she is represented as plainly yet richly dressed and devoted to the matter of religion. Elizabeth also would have been cognizant of her gender being a potential issue. Mary I had, unfortunately, set a bad precedent as England's first queen regnant. In 1558, Scottish reformer John Knox published his infamous pamphlet, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. In that pamphlet, Knox rails against the idea of women ruling, saying that it, quote, goes against the laws of God and nature, that female rule challenges the God-given authority of men over women, and that women are incompetent to rule, being weak, foolish, cruel by nature, and lacking the masculine capacities necessary to govern. Boy, I am so glad we have moved out of that misogynistic rhetoric. Can you imagine if people said that about female rulers today? Elizabeth, therefore, had little choice but to present herself as a pious and solemn monarch. She could not have appeared in frivolous dress or in womanly poses, Note that she is not holding a handkerchief or a rose in her hands as a reference to her nobility as a woman of the House of Tudor, but rather a practical and androgynous pair of leather gloves. Her facial features, too, were decidedly more masculine than they would later appear in her portraiture, and her female silhouette is completely hidden under those thick fabrics and her ruff. We can also see Elizabeth relying heavily on those solemn shades of black and white that had served her well when she needed to twice regain favor at court after scandal. Elizabeth was fond of black and white or silver clothes throughout her reign. She would call them, quote, my colors, and they often appeared in portraits of her, such as the Armada portrait, which commemorated the English victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588. Black, white, and silver were not only her favorite colors—they were also expensive to produce and maintain—but they also contrasted nicely with Elizabeth's lifelong pale complexion—a sign of her elite status that she would try desperately to hang on to, even resorting to chemical compounds pasted on her skin that were ultimately bad for her health. Black, white, and silver also contrasted nicely with her auburn hair, that characteristic feature of the Tudor dynasty. Elizabeth's clothing and accessories themselves often contained meanings that would have been instantly recognizable to her subjects, but are maybe less familiar to us in 2022. The intricate sleeves and elaborate ruffs, for instance, were a sign that she was a woman who did not have to do any physical or manual labor. And of course, the jewel-encrusted gowns that appear later in her portraits were a testament to her wealth. Here, the gold embroidery is doing the job as setting her apart from just a run-of-the-mill pious lady and elevating her to status as a noble, if not a queen. In the heaver portrait, the most visible symbol of Elizabeth's power is the ermine fur sitting on her shoulders. A popular legend from European folklore says that an ermine, also called a stoat or a short-tailed weasel, would have rather died than have its pure white hair stained with blood. When chased by huntsmen, the small creature supposedly turned itself inward instead of risking stains to its coat. Thank you, neighbor. I don't know why, apparently I always insist on recording when there is construction or trash collections happening outside the window. Um, okay. The legend of choosing death over the loss of its furs, purity, (laughs) became a potent symbol of moral virtue, and the ermine's spotless fur became something that only high nobility or royalty members could wear. The tutors, in particular didn't just wear these extravagant clothes, they manipulated their use as a means of power and control. Things called sumptuary laws were enacted to regulate exactly what certain classes of people wore, from fabrics to articles of clothing to accessories. People were only permitted to wear certain things in accordance with their hierarchical status in society. Women were exempt from the earliest sumptuary laws of the Tudor dynasty, those enacted under Henry VIII, as monitoring women and children's clothing was seen as a domestic matter for male heads of the family or the clergy to enforce. Henry would not have considered a well-dressed lady a threat or a rival at court in the way he might view a particularly well-dressed gentleman as a threat. In fact, I think you could make a case that Henry would have liked to see a exceptionally well-dressed lady, and to shower even other men's wives with gifts of sumptuous clothing and jewelry. Elizabeth I would make significant changes to sumptuary laws eventually during her rule. In 1574, she extended them to women, who now had to dress according to the status of their husbands. Elizabeth passed a total of nine acts of apparel while Queen, and even unsuccessfully tried to ban, quote, any new kind or form of apparel. She too wanted to stick with the devil she knew rather than the devil she didn't. The Queen kept the most luxurious and beautiful fabrics for her own use, and by doing so, reinforced that power and authority. She did not want anyone competing with her for affection in the hearts of her people, or her many courtly admirers, even after she made it clear that she was going to stick to her eight-year-old proclamation of never taking a husband. Absent in the Haver portrait, as I said, are jewels. Elizabeth does wear magnificent gold on black embroidery and a gold chain and ring, but she is not encrusted with jewels as she would be later in her reign. She would come to use pearls in particular as a sign of her virginity and purity, as her image as the Virgin Queen began to dominate. But here, she foregoes them to reinforce her ability and strength as a ruler, and her purity in a different way, as a righteous and serious woman. If this likeness of Elizabeth is not quite masculine, then it is certainly androgynous. And this iconography used to depict Queen Elizabeth does stress her God-given right to govern despite her unfortunate sex as a woman. Also interesting to note, this head-on pose employed here in the Heaver portrait was quickly abandoned in subsequent portraits of Elizabeth, disappearing actually really soon after her succession. It may have been judged an improper, old-fashioned, or just less becoming way of depicting the young queen, And almost all of Elizabeth's portraits after this date show her face at a slight angle away from the viewer in what we call a three-quarter view. As the face-on portrait was preferred by Henry VIII, it does make sense to me that Elizabeth would use it to emulate her father while she was still creating her own iconography, and then move away from it as soon as she deemed it acceptable and possible to go for something more flattering. Elizabeth's decisions about religion from 1558 to 1559 were swift, but are described as relatively conservative. There was little appetite in England for yet more extreme religious changes after the reforms that Henry, Edward, and then Mary had tried and failed to introduce. The prospect of the religious pendulum again swinging violently from one extreme to the other was a real fear and something that Elizabeth and her advisors sought to avoid. As a Protestant queen in a long line of religiously divisive monarchs, and as a female ruler in a male-dominated world, Elizabeth had to find a way of being everything to everyone. Depictions like the Hever portrait, of which there are possibly, like I said, two or three more, all may be copied from this one or the earlier Barry Hill portrait, were a vital tool in conveying those messages of strength, capability, piety, and resolve. As Elizabeth got older and became more confident in her ability to govern, her portraits continued to contain emblems of the Tudor dynasty, her elite status and her capability all displayed on an eternally youthful face. She solidified into a symbol unto itself, one which radiated strength even as her physical body deteriorated. It's always been interesting to me that even after all the turmoil that Elizabeth faced to eventually arrive at the throne, she herself never officially acknowledged an heir. For all the efforts that went into depicting her reign as one of stability, visible from the first moment that she knew she would one day hold power, Elizabeth left an open question when it came to who would succeed her. She would have been cognizant of the plots that can arise around an heir presumptive, having been at the center of a few of them herself. But rather than placing blind trust in her ability to hold on to the reins of power, she remained vigilant, some would say paranoid that the ever-present threat of dethronement could come for her if she gave any indication that she would not reign indefinitely. Instead, Elizabeth I relied on a tapestry woven from propaganda and symbolism to carry her through an ultimately long and successful reign that, for many years, had never been assured at all. She would rule for 44 years, painting herself as a righteous and selfless woman who sacrificed personal happiness for the good of the nation, until her death in 1603. I hope to cover Elizabeth again in the future as we believe it or not have barely scratched the surface when it comes to her, but I did want to cover a period in her life and reign that is not exactly neglected but is certainly focused on less than her eventual exploits as the Virgin Queen, the giver of the Golden Speech, and the conqueror of the Spanish Armada. We could certainly also talk more about Elizabeth's decision to never marry, despite plenty of offers from colorful characters, including a few that appeared in this episode. But I have to put her aside for now because she is just so larger than life that my brain can't hold much more trivia about Elizabeth for the moment. I would definitely love to hear whether you agree with my theses about the Heaver portrait, whether that is about who is the subject of the portrait, when it was painted, or what it is conveying. I would also love to hear what interested you the most about Elizabeth I's early life. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode, or what you would like to hear next, you can send those my way as well. I'm about to get into the list of ways you can contact me, which is kind of long at this point. <laughs> um, you can leave a comment on the Patreon. Again, that is patreon.com slash of fact. Or on the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. You can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. On TikTok, you can message me at Art of History Pod. I do post videos very, very sporadically over there. Um, you can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Art Pod. And of course, I continue to make royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. I've also been doing more royal coverage on my personal Instagram, and I'm really getting close to 10,000 followers on there, so it would be cool if you would follow me there as well. That, of course, is at Mata of Fact, M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and the beginning of season two of the Art of History podcast. I have some really cool stuff um, in the vault that I just need to decide what order it's going to go in. So I'm excited. I hope you are excited as well. Share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it, and I will see you in the next one.